This is tape number one in our six-tape album, Teaching Through the Book of Galatians. This is taken from a series that I've been doing going through the New Testament called Life for Today, and this is actually the equivalent of our uh, Life for Today tape number 102. It covers verses 1 through 24 in Galatians 1. Before we get into actually teaching on the scripture of Galatians, I think there's a few things I need to point out overall about this book. Uh, This is one of the most powerful, forceful books that Paul ever wrote. In my estimation, I believe that it's probably his strongest, nearly like an angry uh, letter. The letter of uh, Ephesians deals with a lot of these same great truths, and it presents some of the things, but the letter to the Ephesians is a letter to a group of people who fought Paul... um, felt were responding and acting properly. In the letter to the Galatians, Paul is is kind of put out with these people. And I don't believe that it's an anger as much as it is a jealousy for him. He is like their spiritual father. Well, he is their spiritual father. And it just is astounding him that the Galatians could have moved away from faith in the Lord so quickly. And also it really upsets him the way that they had fallen for another gospel or actually a perversion of the gospel when he had been so clear, when he so clearly set forth the gospel in front of them. So you see uh, Paul uh, ministering through the book of Galatians in a strong, forceful way. Some of the most forceful things said in all of the New Testament about grace and righteousness versus works is said right here in the book of Galatians, and it certainly makes a point. I believe that the book of Romans is probably the masterpiece of uh, Paul as far as presenting the truth of salvation by grace and countering legalism, Uh, but the book of Romans is his most forceful book. When you put these two together, uh, you get a perspective on grace and the goodness of God that I believe is just overwhelmingly convincing of the fact that grace is the method whereby we are justified and whereby we approach unto God. And so the book of Galatians is uh, one of my favorite books. Boy, it just pulls the cover off of things. It reveals things as they are. There's some real strong statements in here about the Judaizers, the legalistic Jews who were trying to incorporate the Old Testament observance of the law into the gospel. And uh, as we get through this book, I think that you'll see that, and it's really good. Another thing about this book is that Paul isn't just countering like another religion in the sense that he was countering a totally different belief system. The thing that had happened to the Galatians was that they had fallen into trying to take the gospel and incorporating Judaism into it. They were trying to mix the two. In other words, they were trying to bring the observance of all of the Old Testament laws, particularly the number one thing that Paul deals with here in the book of Galatians is the rite of circumcision, and that you had to be circumcised if you were a male for salvation. And they were trying to mix these two. And actually, this is a much more subtle way of deception than if somebody would have just come across and have preached to them some other religion. Say, for instance, if the doctrine of uh, the goddess uh, of Ephesians, you know, Diana, the god of the Ephesians, as recorded over there, I believe it's Acts chapter 18. If somebody would have come along preaching that doctrine and preaching the worship of some goddess and the fertility rites and all of these kind of things, the contrast between that And the gospel message that Paul preached, I believe, would have been so obvious that there would have been no deception, 
these people would not have forsaken Christianity to go with something like that. But when the Judaizers, the legalistic Jews, came along preaching, saying, well, yes, what Paul said is true, but the root of Christianity was in Judaism, and to be a true Christian, you've got to go back and start observing all of the Jewish rituals, specifically this rite of circumcision. And see, to do that, that was more subtle. And this is the point that Paul makes in the first chapter when he says it's really not another gospel. In other words, it's not another message. It's somebody trying to pervert, trying to add to, change to the gospel. And this is happening in our culture today. You know, there are a tremendous amount of people in the Western world who've embraced Christianity and call themselves Christians And yet, very subtly, Satan has come in, and it's not necessarily Eastern religions or things like that that pose the greatest threat, but the greatest threat is a perversion of Christianity to where people come in and begin to start teaching, well, you've got to be a good person, you've got to be a moral person, teaching that you've got to be holy, and if you aren't holy, God won't bless you, God won't move in your life. That's a perversion of the true message of Christianity. Now, the true message of Christianity encourages holiness, but not for the purpose of justification. Holiness is a byproduct, a fruit, not a root of salvation. And anything that changes that, see, it's a perversion, and it's subtle. Because even a person's own conscience tells us that holiness, or right acting, is the right thing to do. But if we substitute our good actions for trusting in Jesus and Jesus alone as the basis of our relationship with God, then that becomes a perversion of the gospel. And that has happened today. I really believe that in the United States of America, which is considered to be a Christian nation, we have in God we trust on our coinage, and we look at that, and and many people around the world revere what's going on in the United States. And I'm certainly not here to dump on it. I I love America, and I believe I'm the optimist. I believe God is still doing great things here. But there are huge amounts of people in this nation who are deceived, thinking that they are saved simply because they attend church, because they're a moral person, because they aren't a Hindu, Buddhist, Muslim, or etc., because they embrace the basic foundation doctrines of the church, the Christian church. They think that produces salvation. They are trusting in their actions, in some uh, ideology, instead of an experience, a a born-again experience like what Jesus taught. And I know that there may be some people listening to this tape who differ with that, and you may not see that, but I really believe that that is a major factor in the United States today. And there are literally millions of people who are in the quote-unquote Christian church that are going to hell because they are believing that there's a God. But as it says in James chapter 2, verse 19, it says, Do you believe that there's one God? You do well. The devils also believe and tremble. But won't you know, vain man, that faith without works is dead? It takes more than intellectual knowledge. It takes more than a mental assent to the fact that certain historical facts are true. It takes a commitment on our part to Jesus, not a commitment to our goodness and to our holiness. If we're going to stand before God and proclaim our own goodness for salvation, then we will be sent to hell. It's only those who have a Savior who will make it into heaven. And that's what uh, Galatians is presenting. And Paul makes this very clear. So 
the message of Galatians is really applicable to our situation today. I mean, this is written up to date. It was just like it was written about the church today. As we go through this teaching, I believe that there are going to be some things here that will really, really help every single person listening. If, perchance, there's somebody who isn't born again, you simply are embracing Christian principles, thinking that's sufficient, then you can be born again through these truths that we're talking about. If you have been born again, but yet you are like the Galatians here, and you've slip back into legalism, and you're in danger of actually moving away from faith in the Lord back into trusting in your own self for salvation, well, then this could radically change your life and stop that downward slide. It could bring back the joy of your salvation, which a person who is legalistic and trusting in their holiness and proclaiming holiness does not have true joy. They are under such a burden of performance that the weight of salvation is on their shoulders, and they cannot really enjoy the benefit of our salvation. So the book of Galatians, I believe, is really good, and it's going to be a tremendous blessing to all of us. So the obvious purpose of this letter was for Paul to turn back the Galatians to faith in Christ, and he did it in the most forceful uh, way possible. But besides this, in the latter part of the first chapter and also into the second chapter, Paul provides us with some information about him in between the time of his conversion and when he actually started ministering the gospel on a, you know, as recorded in the book of Acts. And so there are some personal uh, sketches about Paul that he gives of himself right here in the book of Galatians that we don't find anywhere else in Scripture, and that also serves a secondary benefit to this book. Uh, there is no doubt that Paul is the author of this book. It says that right in the very first verse. It says, Paul, an apostle, not a man, neither by man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead, etc. So the scripture says that Paul is the author. You know, I was surprised to find out that there are actually scholars who believe Paul is not the author. And basically they base that on subtle differences that are in this book from some of the other writings of Paul. As I've already said, this is by far his strongest writing. And so they they look at things like that. But, I mean, they have to deny that the first verse of Galatians is inspired. I'm certainly not prepared to say that the first verse of Galatians is not inspired. I believe it is. I believe that every one of the things we have recorded for us as Scripture today is inspired by God. And so, anyway, these few people that do disagree about Paul being the author are few and far between, and as far as I'm concerned, are totally wrong, because I believe that the Scripture is accurate, and it and it straightforward puts Paul as the author of the book of Galatians. As to uh, the area of Galatia, this is referring to an area in Asia Minor. Galatia was actually uh, the first written history, or the recorded history that we have, of this area is when the Gauls invaded this area around 280 B.C. The Gauls are the people who later on came uh, uh, to populate France. And so the Gauls came into this area and then later migrated into what is called Galatia here in the Bible. And uh, the Gauls, the name for them by the Greeks was Galatia, and that's the reason that Galatia uh, became the name of this region. There is some difference among people about what compromises the area of Galatia, and that's because originally the area of Galatia was just specifying a certain area uh, kind of north of the cities of Lystra, Derby, and Iconium that are recorded in the book of Acts where Paul ministered and that the letter of Galatia is written to. 
And so some people, because of this, they wonder whether it even incorporates Lister Derby and Iconium, and they wonder who Paul is writing to since he didn't go into what he has called uh, officially the area of Galatia. But I believe that the way to harmonize all this is basically just to say that the area of Galatia changed its boundaries many times through war and conquest. And under the last king that Galatia had, he expanded the borders, and it did include the area called Lystra, Derby, and Iconium. And so at the time of Paul's writings, the missionary journeys of Paul, Galatia was much bigger than what you can read about in some things. If you turn to different books, some books will not include these three southern cities of Lystra, Derby, and Iconium in the area of Galatia. But if you look at it, uh, in Scripture, it definitely places Lystra, Derby, and Iconium in the area of Galatia. And so this is who Paul is writing this book to. We have a number of recorded uh, instances where Paul came to these people. He ministered in these three cities in each one of his three missionary journeys. On each one he was there. And the Scripture says he specifically went to these in order and strengthened them. So we know uh, a little bit about the background of this letter to Galatians because in the book of Acts it talks about his ministry in Lystra, Derby, and Iconium. Derby is where he was stoned and left for dead. And as the disciples stood round about him, he rose up and walked the next day about 20 miles into the next city. And so anyway, we have a little bit of background information about this. Uh, at the time that Paul was there, of course, the Roman government had actually come in and conquered that area and had taken over. And so they were. there was actually a province called Galatia, which did include these three cities of Lystra, Derby, and Iconium. As to the time that the book of Galatians was written, uh, there's a lot of variation all the way from 51 A.D. up to 68 A.D. Now that's a 17-year discrepancy among different scholars depending on who you go to. And as I read and studied some things about this, basically the scholars who placed the writing of the book of Galatians late, uh, as far late as 68 A.D., that was because they felt that his treatise on grace, his dealings with the legalistic Jews and things like this, that this was more characteristic of things towards the end of his ministry. In other words, the Judaizers uh, didn't really begin to penetrate the Gentile churches that Paul had established, according to some people's thinking, until later in the ministry of Paul. When Paul went out on his first missionary journeys, they think that Paul was relatively out there pioneering and there wasn't legalistic Jews following him up and doing these things. And so that's one of the reasonings. Also, the fact that he dealt with this subject so detailed, it reminds them of his treatment of the subject of law and grace in the book of Romans. Again, with just the twist that it's a lot more uh, scolding, it's a lot stronger ministry. And so by comparing it with the book of Romans, we are fairly confident that the book of Romans was written late in the ministry of Paul. And uh, we can base that on the fact that he mentions being in prison and different things like this. And so because of that, they think that it must be written around the same time. Now, those are kind of subtle uh, indications in there. Some things on the other side of the coin, Paul definitely says, he says, I marvel that you are so soon removed from him that called you into the grace of Christ unto another gospel. That's in the very first chapter and in verse 6. 
And so Paul here is implying that this was a relatively short period of time after one of his ministry trips there, which would uh, it would look exactly opposite this later writing of the book of Galatians. Now, it is possible that when Paul was saying, I marvel that you are so soon, that could be a relative term. I mean, if it was within 20 years after the time that they first had the gospel preached unto them, you could look at that and say that that was quick for them to turn away from the gospel. I mean, it, that could be explained away as a relative term. But in every other one of the books that are called the prison epistles of Paul, uh, the ones that were written late in his ministry after he was already in prison, like on his way to Rome awaiting uh, his uh, audience before Caesar. In every one of these other prison epistles, if you would look at them, you can find references that Paul makes to his bonds, to the defense of the gospel, no man standing with him, etc. And there's always some type of reference. There is no reference like that in the book of Galatians. And so when you put all of these facts together, I believe what it means is that you cannot be uh, accurate and authoritative as to the date and location of the writing of Galatians because there just isn't enough internal evidence. Now, again, we could go outside of the Bible and look at other people's writings and do things, but again, I don't think that that's a real accurate way. There may be some benefit to it, but... I certainly don't establish any of my doctrines or base anything on extra-biblical material. I don't put any other writings in the same category as the Bible. So basically, all I'm committed to say is that some scholars, like Dake's Study Bible, put the writing of Galatians at 68 A.D. Uh, others, Davis Dictionary, puts it between 55 and 58 A.D. That's anywhere from 10 to 13 years earlier. The NIV Study Bible even says it could be as early as 51 A.D., all the way from 51 to 57. So here's all respected uh, people with different opinions, which basically leads me to the conclusion that you just can't be authoritative about the date and the location of the writing. You can say from... Uh, evidence given in the book of Galatians that it was written shortly after uh, Paul, one of Paul's ministries to these Galatians based on this fact that he says, I marvel that you are so soon removed. And again, that's even up for a little bit of debate as to whether you believe that that was kind of a relative term. It would imply that this was, was within a year or two of Paul's ministry there. Uh, as far as the location of it, again, it would depend when it was written. We know fairly accurately where Paul was during these periods of time because the book of Acts can date where he was. But depending upon what the date was, well, then that will vary uh, the location. So, again, I don't think that we can be totally accurate on either the date or the location of the writing. Just suffice it to say that I believe it was Paul. He makes that very clear. It was inspired by the Holy Spirit. It was somewhere between that period of time, 51 and 68 A.D. Actually, getting into the book here, like I said, Paul, uh, he just really goes right to the point. He makes just a few introductory statements, but then he gets after the, the message of this book. Uh, before we get right into that, let me go through some of the introductory things here in the first chapter. In verse 1, he says, Paul, an apostle, not of man, neither by man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. Now, we could spend a lot of time on this. I just want to mention a couple of things and move on because we need to really cover some material in this uh, letter. 
But Paul here is asserting that he is an apostle, and not just an apostle, but he makes a specific point of saying that he was not an apostle of man. That word apostle means a messenger or a special envoy. In other words, he was not sent from man. Man is not the one that sent him. They didn't do it. He is not there to proclaim a message from man. He wasn't sent by man, but he was sent directly by Jesus Christ, God the Father, who raised him from the dead. I believe Paul is underscoring the fact that it was God that sent him because he's going to be saying some things in this letter that are going to be very hard on the Galatians. It's very um, uh, authoritative. And where is he coming up with this authority from? Well, he starts off letting you know that, hey, I am an apostle, and I'm not an apostle called of man, sent by man. I was called by God. My message, my authority, what I'm telling you is from God. In other words, he's not going to give them any opportunity to disagree and say, well, that's just Paul's opinion. You know, in our day of political correctness, there are very few people who would take the approach that Paul did here. Most people come up and we hear phrases like, well, in my opinion, I feel like, this is what I believe, I think. Uh, you know, and very few people are willing to say, thus saith the Lord, this is the way it is. And it's because it's so easy to counter somebody like that. I mean, are you saying that you have a corner on this? And there's very few people that are willing to take that type of responsibility and stand in judgment for everything that they're saying and saying, yes, I am inspired of God. It's just easier to say, well, I believe God may be uh, using me some degree, but, uh, you know, let's just present this as andeology or whatever. Well, Paul didn't take that approach. I mean, Paul was leaving no room for doubt. There was no way that these Galatians were going to be able to blow off what he said and said, well, that's just Paul's opinion. No, Paul is saying this is not my opinion. I am speaking directly from God. I am God's messenger sent and ordained by him, and you do not have the option. You either reject God or you accept this as a message from God. There is no in-between. I believe that that's the point that Paul is trying to emphasize here. In verse 2, it says, All the brethren which are with me unto the churches of Galatia. And so Paul here uh, had some other brethren with him. He didn't say exactly who this was, but uh, the point that he's making is that this isn't only Paul, but the other people, probably those who traveled with him through the area of Lystra, Derby, and Iconium, uh, these other believers right there, they were in agreement. In other words, Paul's saying it's not just only my opinion. There's others who have the same impression from God. So it's Paul speaking directly as a minister from God, and the brothers are in agreement with him. He starts off, even though this is going to be such a strong letter, in verse 3 he says, Grace be to you in peace from God the Father and from our Lord Jesus Christ. Now this reveals that even though he's going to be very harsh with them and say some strong things, he still considers these people to be brethren. He does not see them as being reprobate yet. He's writing this letter to warn them and to turn them from that, and he certainly gets strong with them, but he still is ministering grace and peace unto them. He sees them as brethren in the Lord. So this is not uh, something written to people to hurt them. It's really written to help them, even though it is such strong language. In verse 4, he says, well, in verse 3, he said, Grace be unto you from peace and peace from God the Father and from our Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins that he might deliver us from this present evil world according to the will of God and our Father. Now, again, this is still introductory 
It's before he actually gets into making his point. But this is a powerful verse that has really ministered to me. It's just a statement about the purpose of Jesus coming to this earth. And, you know, many people have changed the purpose of Jesus coming to this earth to being only to deal with the forgiveness of our sins and our life in eternity with God the Father on the new earth or in heaven. And some people, that's what they present as the gospel. But Paul right here is saying that the purpose that Jesus came, he gave himself for our sins that he might deliver us from this present evil world. Not talking about hell in the future, some destruction off in the future, but he says that Jesus came to this earth to deliver us out of this present evil world. That's talking about this present age, the present state of decay that we see in the earth because of sin. And what this does, see, it, if you just really embrace this one scripture, this one scripture is a powerful thing to show that the Lord didn't come to just forgive us of our sins and then leave us saved and stuck until we either die or he comes back for us. This is not proclaiming that Christianity is just suffering with sin, with sickness, with disease, with poverty, with loneliness, with depression, that we are just struggling and we're a poor wayfaring pilgrim trudging through this life below. No, this shows that the Lord, part of our redemption, is deliverance from this present evil world. That means that we can walk in health. We can walk in prosperity. We can walk in victory. I'm not talking about victory without any effort, without any attacks. I'm not saying that we are immune to anything the devil wants to do. No, he will fight against us, but we are supposed to walk in victory. And that's exactly what this verse is saying. Jesus gave himself for our sins to deliver us from this present evil world. And there are so many Christians that have missed this, that they had salvation presented to them as the forgiveness of sins only, something to do with their eternal soul off in eternity, but very little impact in this life. Many people believe that really the only benefit of their salvation in this life is that it gives them peace and comfort to know that the future is taken care of and that there is sympathy and pity and understanding from God as we endure our hardships in this life. But they don't believe that we can really prosper and walk in total victory in this life. Well, this verse is saying just the opposite. This verse is saying that he wants us, this is the purpose of God, is to deliver us from this present evil world. I don't understand how anybody could take that as anything except delivering us from all of the hardships and the problems that we encounter here. This isn't talking about in heaven. This isn't talking about eternity. This is talking about being delivered from this present evil world. That's sickness, poverty, oppression of all kinds and things like that. Praise God. Boy, that is a powerful truth. And that's what Paul begins this letter with. And I believe that one of the purposes of saying this and inserting this is just to remind the Galatians who were, he's going to make it very clear that they were fallen from grace or they were in danger of falling from grace. He's reminding them basically about the victory that was theirs in Christ. Once a person gets into legalism and once they move away from grace, you'll find out that they quit walking in joy and peace. A person who's operating in legalism is a person who's condemning, he's judgmental, he's cantankerous, he's hard to get along with. And the scripture says over in Hebrews chapter 13 that whoever ministers that kind of judgment to you will bear his own judgment, whosoever he be. 
And basically what that's saying is that if a person is judgmental and condemning others and saying, you aren't living holy, you start doing like this, a person will be under that same guilt and condemnation that they wind up imposing upon other people. So you find legalistic people are people who are not really walking in the joy of their salvation. I remember when I was first getting started in the ministry, when I was uh, pastoring a little church in Seagaville, Texas, I'd stay up there and pray lots of times, and we were right downtown, and people would see the sign. They'd come in, and we'd talk. And I remember talking to a man. I won't mention the denomination he was from, but he was there condemning me and telling me unless I was baptized exactly a certain way in the name of Jesus and unless I was living holy and all of these things that I couldn't be saved. It wasn't only faith in Jesus and confessing him as my Lord, but I had to also observe other things, and I had to be holy and do these kind of things. And we were talking about this. Actually, we argued about it for hours. I wouldn't do those kind of things now, but back then I, I thought I could change this guy. And I was arguing with him, and uh, I was new in, in a lot of these things. I really didn't have a lot of this figured out yet, and I was not convincing him, and I wasn't impacting him. And finally, the route that I took, the way that I tried to reach him, was just to tell him that, look, you know, you're miserable. I said, you don't have any joy. I said, you're angry with me. I said, I cannot discern any peace, any joy in your life. You aren't having the fellowship and the enjoyment of the presence of God. I said, here you are preaching a doctrine, and you got all of these scriptures you're showing me. But I said, look at the fruit in your life. I said, I'm happy. I'm blessed. I said, man, God is more real to me. I'm more excited about God. I've said I've got more joy. I've got more peace. I've got love. I said, I'm trying to minister to you in love. I've been trying to be positive and encourage you. And I showed him some scriptures where Jesus said in the 13th chapter of John that by this shall all men know that you are my disciples, that you have love one for another. And I said, I don't understand everything, but I do know this, that the fruit of your doctrine is not releasing any love, joy, peace, all of these kind of things. And I said, mine is. And, you know, that really stopped this guy in his tracks. And I believe that that's something that's true of any person who comes preaching just some doctrine to you, some legalistic thing, is just start asking them, you know, are you happy? Do you have peace? Do you have joy? Well, sometimes they'll counter with saying, well, happiness isn't the issue. It's being right. Well, you know, really, the Bible says that when you're walking in the things of God, it does produce some emotional benefit. It does produce peace and happiness in your life and things like that. So anyway, I believe that this is one reason that Paul has said this. He says that the Lord gave himself for our sins to deliver us from this present evil world. They had gotten caught up in a doctrine. They had an argument they had a doctrine they were proclaiming. It is possible to do that. I know some people that get into these mental exercises. But Paul is beginning to say, hey, wait a minute. Remember that Jesus came not only just to establish what truth was, but he, if you're really walking in the truth, it's going to impact your physical life. He says, you know, there were miracles that happened through my life, through my ministry. People were miraculously set free, all of these kind of things. Is this new doctrine? Are you seeing miracles produced by it? Well, over in the third chapter, when we get to that, you'll find out, no, they weren't. The people who operate in legalism don't see as many miracles happen as the people that operate in the grace and the mercy of God. Are they seeing joy and peace? Well, no, they weren't, and on and on. So anyway, that's one of the reasons that Paul brings this up, is just to remind them that Jesus didn't come. It's not just an exercise in academics that cannot be proven until we get to heaven. You can tell right now. Is there any fruit in your life? What's the fruit of your doctrine? 
Are you walking in joy and peace and happiness? If you aren't, you might need to reconsider some things and especially consider the grace of God as Paul presents it right here in the book of Galatians. In verse 5, it's basically the end of his introduction. He said, talking about God the Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Then in verse 6, he just jumps right in, and he gets right into the meat of the matter. If you would compare this with some of the other writings of Paul, this is a very short introduction. Paul had a purpose in writing this letter, and he wasn't wasting any words. He went right to the point. In verse 6, he says, I marvel that you are so soon removed from him that called you into the grace of Christ unto another gospel which is not another, but there be some that trouble you and would pervert the gospel of Christ. The word marvel in verse 6, uh, is it actually means to evoke surprise. It was translated in various versions of the Bible. It says, I marvel, I am amazed, I am astonished, I am surprised at you. And so Paul here, he is expressing, uh, I mean, this really shook Paul. Apparently he had dealt with uh, people who had fallen away from the gospel message before, but he hadn't dealt with people that had happened so quickly, maybe people who had embraced it so widely. As you see over in the fourth chapter, the people received the message that Paul had and received message uh, Paul the messenger to such a degree that he says they were willing to pluck out their own eyes and have given them unto him. In other words, there was a love, there was an acceptance there was such a kindred spirit, a unity among them, that Paul is just astonished that they could have ever moved away from this. Uh, this is an amazing statement here, and I believe that Paul's harsh treatment here is because he, he really felt differently about these Galatians than maybe he had some other people. These Galatians, he also said over here, you know, that God had been evidently set forth before them, crucified among them. It's just like Jesus had literally died in front of these people. That's how real the Holy Spirit's ministry through Paul was. And Paul was astounded that people could move away so quickly. You know, we don't know all the details of this, but I do know that as a minister, I have met people, and I've ministered to people personally, who were just so turned on to God, were so turned on to the message that I was sharing. We were such close friends and all of these things that it, there, there are times that it just astounds you how a person can seemingly turn his back on all of that, turn his back on his friends, turn his back on his Lord, turn his back on everything that at one time was just dear to him and walk away from it. I've been shocked. There's sometimes I see this happen, but I'm not shocked because the person never totally committed themselves. But the thing that makes it shocking is when you see somebody who was really committed, somebody who was really turned on and excited about God. And I've experienced that. So I think that what this is showing is when Paul said he's marveling, it shows that uh, this not only shows Paul's reaction, but it shows how much these Galatians had embraced the gospel and how strong they were in it. There was a real commitment on their part, and that's the reason that Paul is expressing this shock. In the Greek, in verse 6 here, where it says that you are removed, the word that uh, is used for remove here is indicating that this removal is still in process, that it wasn't yet complete. And so Paul here isn't saying that these people are totally removed. In other words, that they're reprobate. Matter of fact, the, 
the tone of the entire book of Galatians is trying to bring them back under their faith in Christ, which uh, the writer of Hebrews says once a person is really reprobate, once they've fallen away, it's impossible to renew them again under repentance. So this isn't saying that it's already happened. He is saying that it's dangerously close. He even said, I fear, I'm in doubt of you. I'm not sure where you stand. Uh, They were certainly on the borderline. It was just ready to cross over. But Paul here is implying that this removal was still in progress, that it was not complete yet. Notice also here in the sixth verse that Paul said, I marvel that you are so soon removed from him that called you into the grace of Christ unto another gospel. He uses the term grace and gospel interchangeably. This was also done in Acts chapter 20 and verse 4. And I've got a footnote there, number 5, at Acts 24. And this is on page 618 of our printed materials that goes into quite a bit of detail about that. But we'll be talking about this and using this truth. We'll be using the words grace and gospel interchangeably as we go through the book of Galatians. Because when you're talking about gospel, you are talking about the grace of God. The word gospel, it's become a religious cliche. And you find a lot of people today that talk about preaching the gospel. And yet they may be preaching nothing but condemnation. As a matter of fact, there are many people that preach exactly what Paul is countering here in the book of Galatians. There are people today that are preaching uh, justification with God by works, by performance, every bit as strong as these legalistic Jews that Paul rebukes here in the book of Galatians. And yet they call that the gospel. There's a lot of people that preach hellfire and damnation and believe that, boy, just telling a person you're going to hell and God's angry at you, repent, and they just are beating people with the word, using it like a club. A lot of people call that the gospel. That is not the gospel. The word gospel literally means good news. But also, it's interchangeable with the grace of God. The only thing that's good news, you know, it may be truth to tell a person that there is a hell and that they are going to hell for their sins and that God is angry with sin. That may be true, but it's not good news. It's not the gospel. That's not the grace. It's it's okay to tell a person that sins are real, that there is an accounting for our sins. There is going to be a judgment day. Heaven is real. Hell is real. There is a true God. There is a devil. You're either going to live forever with God or you're going to live forever with the devil. Those things are true, but the gospel specifically is saying even though those things are true, God has made a way for you to receive his salvation. And it's totally by grace. It's by what Jesus did for you, not what you do for Jesus. And on and on it goes. As you expound on the grace of God, then you are proclaiming the gospel. And I believe it's very important to make that point because there's a lot of people that just, again, use condemnation, guilt, anger, viciousness, and they call that the gospel. It's not. The Bible here is saying that the grace of God is the gospel of God. If a person isn't preaching the grace of God, then they aren't preaching the gospel. And as we made the point over in the book of Romans, if you aren't preaching the grace of God to the extent that somebody says, well, are you saying that we can just live in sin and that God loves us anyway? If you aren't preaching it so that somebody thinks that, then you haven't preached the gospel the way that Paul preached it. 
because there's four different times in Paul's writings that as he was explaining the grace of God, he would come up and say, are we saying that we shall continue in sin, that grace may abound? God forbid. And he'd have to counter that thinking, knowing that that was the way somebody was going to take what he was saying. And so Paul preached the grace of God to such a degree that he had to continually come back and say, now this does not mean I'm saying that you can live in sin. Nobody would mistake what you are preaching for saying that it's okay to live in sin, then you haven't presented the grace of God the way that Paul presented it. You do have to make sure that you, you're, under, you're making it clear to people that you aren't encouraging sin, but that God loves you in spite of your sin. And I've got a, a footnote on that over in Romans chapter 6 and verse 1. So Paul here is using the term gospel and grace interchangeably in verse 6. Notice also, he says, I marvel that you are so soon removed from him that called you. In other words, this isn't just a doctrinal shift. I'm sure that the Galatians would have taken this as nothing but a doctrinal shift. They would have thought, well, I hadn't left the Lord. I still believe in Jesus. I still believe that Jesus came and died for our sins. I don't believe that these Galatians had moved away from some of those things. In their mind, they probably had just added a little bit of doctrinal belief or something. But Paul took it out of that category, and he says, you have departed from Christ. And this is always true when you're confronting legalistic people. Legalistic people, people who are preaching that you have to live holy, and it's based on what Jesus did plus what you do. People who preach that, they will tell you that they are not ignoring Jesus. They haven't diminished what Jesus has done any at all. They just believe that you also have to do this and this and this. But Paul here is making it very clear that if you move away from the grace of God and start preaching performance and works for justification or relationship with God, then you have moved away from Jesus. It's either all Jesus or it's all you, but it's not a combination of the two. That's what Romans chapter 11, verse 6 says. It says you're either saved by grace without works, otherwise uh, grace is no more grace, or you're saved by works without grace, otherwise works is no more works. Simply saying that you can't mix the two, and there is no mixing of it. In the next verse, Paul says, which is not another, talking about this grace or this gospel that you've moved into, it's not really another gospel but there be some that trouble you and would pervert the gospel of Christ. I've got a footnote here, verse at uh, footnote number 6, at verse 6, that talks about that there's two different Greek words used for another, one in verse 6 and one in verse 7. In verse 6, it's talking about another that means a different kind. So he's saying that I'm so, I marvel that you are so soon removed from him that called you into the grace of Christ unto a different kind of gospel. But then in verse 7, he uses a different Greek word, which means um, another of, of, a different, of the same kind. And so in verse 7, he's saying, which is not another. In other words, this isn't the same kind of gospel. It is just totally different. They thought it was similar. They thought they were basically saying the same thing. See, this is what made this so deceptive. If, uh, As I said in the introduction here, if there would have been some totally different message saying, nope, Jesus isn't the way, Diana of the Ephesians is the way, that would have been so different that it would have been obvious they never would have fallen for that deception. 
But instead, these legalistic Jews were coming along and saying, sure, we still believe everything that Jesus said and everything that Paul taught about Jesus. Yes, that's true, but you've also got to add this. They thought it was the same gospel, but it wasn't. It was another of a different kind. It was totally different. In other words, a person that comes along and says, well, sure, you've got to make Jesus your Lord. You've got to believe on him, but also you've got to be water baptized, and also you've got to be holy. And if you aren't living holy, and if you have any unconfessed sin in your life, and if there's any failure in you, you can't tell me that you're born again. Now, see, some people would fall for that, but that is not even a similar gospel. If you truly understand the gospel that faith has to be put in Jesus alone, then that is not another gospel of the same kind. It's just totally different. It totally violates what Jesus came to do. You're either saved totally by what Jesus has done for you, or you are saved by what you do for Jesus, but not a combination of the two. They do not mix. And Paul here is saying that you think it's the same gospel. It's not. It's totally different. It's a perversion of the gospel. Boy, those are strong terms. And I mean, he just starts off and immediately it's just like slapping them in the face to get their attention. And he says, you are not just adding a little bit to it. You are not modifying, compromising, improving the doctrine. You have totally left it. You are leaving this gospel, and you're going unto another that looks the same, but it's another of a different kind. It's a total perversion. And I mean, he just slaps them right upside the face to start out with. And then in verse 8, he says, But though we are an angel from heaven, preach any other gospel unto you than that which we have preached unto you, let him be accursed. Verse 9, he repeats it and says, As we said before, so say I now again, if any man preach any other gospel unto you than that you have received, let him be accursed. Boy, this is, in my estimation, probably the strongest way of ministering that I've ever seen anywhere in Scripture. I mean, Paul leaves no doubt for any variation here at all. You know, there are certain things that are negotiable. And as we were in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, Paul talked about some of these things, about giving place unto the weaker brother and not judging them if they don't observe the same holidays that you do in different things. There are certain things that are negotiable. Paul said, I make myself, you know, all things to all men that I might by all means win some. Paul was willing to let go on some of his interpretations. But here, the gospel, the grace of God, is not one of those things that Paul compromised on. He said if any other man, it didn't matter who it was, he was putting himself right up there saying, I know that what I've spoken is true. Nobody can add to this. Nobody can improve on it. There is no additions. I have given you the full revelation of the gospel. And then he even went beyond human beings in verse 8. He says, if we are an angel from heaven. In other words, there could be no greater authority. An angel doesn't have anything to add to what Paul said. Boy, those are strong statements. And again, I make the point that in our day of political correctness, where nobody wants to stand up and defend anything and be authoritative, you don't hear many people saying something like this. You don't hear many people saying, thus saith the Lord, this is the way it is. But that's what the Scripture tells us to do over in First Peter. It says, if any man speaks, let him speak as the oracles of God. That means as the very mouthpiece of God, as if you were speaking from right off the altar of God. 
You need to speak, thus saith the Lord. Now, this is not encouraging somebody who's not sure what God is saying to go out and just be bold and say, thus saith the Lord. But it's encouraging a person to make sure that what you're preaching is the gospel, that you got it from God, that you didn't glean it from some man. Even if it came through a man, it has to be God that spoke it to you through that person. You need to get so sure of the message that you're preaching that if somebody counters it, you can stand up though and say, though we are an angel from heaven, preach any other gospel unto you than that which we have preached unto you. Let him be accursed. The term here, cursed, is anathema. It's the same term that was used over in the book of Corinthians where he says, uh, you know, if any man believe not the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be anathema maranatha. That means accursed. Our Lord comes. And Paul here basically is just saying, let this person be damned to hell is what one of the translations uh, translates this as. Boy, these are strong, strong statements. Matter of fact, it's so strong that I believe somebody might have thought he can't mean what it looks like. Nobody would be that bold. Nobody could be that arrogant. Nobody could be that self-confident because this certainly is not typical. Most people, even ministers, are not this strong about what they're preaching. And so somebody might have thought, well, boy, this couldn't mean what it's saying. So just to clarify, Paul comes right back in the ninth verse, and he says, as I said before, so I'm saying it now again. In in other words, it's like, did anybody miss that? Did anybody misunderstand me? Let me say it again to make this crystal clear to you. And then he says again, if any man preach any other gospel unto you than that which which you have received, let him be accursed. Boy, Paul had no reservations. He got his revelation directly from God, and that's what he begins to establish here in the latter part of the chapter. He's just showing these people. He says, the reason I can say this is because I didn't learn this. Nobody taught this to me. This came directly from God. It is not just taking what some man has told me, and it's not logical. It's not human in origin. This is divine revelation. And he just becomes brutal with these Galatians, telling them that there is no option. You either have to reject me, you have to reject that what I've told you, the revelation came from God, or you have to reject this addition, this perversion to the gospel that you've been told. There is no way to mix the two. He's taking away options from them and telling that there's no way you can still be true to the gospel and what you heard through me and be true to this false teaching that has come into the Galatian churches. And so Paul here is just really taking away all options, confronting them and setting the stage for a battle. I mean, he's like pulling out all of his guns and saying, all right, let's duke this out. The last one standing, you know, is the winner. He's uh, This is non-negotiable. He's not willing to compromise on these issues. In verse 10, he says, For do I now persuade man or God? What he's talking about here, am I the one that is convincing you? It, was I the one that was talking to you? Was it just human ability that came and, and persuaded you and convinced you to become a Christian? Or was it God speaking through me? He says, you're going to have to make a choice. I'm saying that it was God speaking through me. And God spoke through me so accurately that there cannot be any additions or corrections. Anything that's added to it is a perversion. So he gives them no room. He says, so the answer to this is, do I now persuade man or God? Well, it was God that was speaking through him. He says, or do I seek to please man? Here he's saying, was I preaching something just to gain your approval? 
Was I coming just trying to get you to accept some message? Did I just hatch something that I thought would be acceptable to people? Did I come up with just some doctrine that I thought, well, there's people like this, and so I preached it? Well, the answer to all of this is he says, if I yet pleased man, I should not be the servant of Christ. He says, man, that that would make take me out of the realm of serving God. He says, if I was a man pleaser, if I was just saying things just to gain acceptance, and see, a lot of times when you preach the grace of God, you'll have people preach this and say, well, boy, you're just preaching what people want to hear. You're just preaching greasy grace, sloppy agape. You're just preaching things that, boy, people want to hear that they can go out and live like the devil. Of course, that is not the message of grace. Paul said over in Titus chapter 2, verse 11, he says, The grace of God that brings salvation has appeared unto all men, teaching us to deny ungodliness and worldly lust, that we should live righteously, soberly, and honestly, or something very similar to that, in this present evil world. I was quoting that from memory. But the grace of God teaches us to deny ungodliness and worldly lust. Grace truly preached. Correct type of grace does not encourage sin, but it will be interpreted that way sometimes, and people will come against you and say, well, you're just preaching what people want to hear. So Paul is leaving no doubt that, hey, he's not a man pleaser. He didn't preach grace just because it was popular and people thought, well, this is wonderful. See, these legalistic Jews that were coming in, uh, I believe that they were probably accusing Paul of things just like this. And so he was setting the record straight. He was not the one that came and persuaded them. It was God ministering through him. He was not saying things just to please them because that would take him out of being a servant of Christ. In verse 11, he says, I certify you. In other words, this is an old English term for just saying, I'm informing you. I'm wanting you to know. I'm making this crystal clear to you, brethren, that the gospel which preached of me is not after man. And his reason for saying all of this is because, basically, some people see it come in and they had countered Paul's teaching, but not completely. They hadn't totally thrown it out. They were trying to just, you know, add to it. They were trying to wrap it in this legalism of the Jewish religion. And probably they'd come along and said things like, well, sure, Paul, God used him. But, you know, Paul, he's just a man. He communicated to you the best he knew how, but it probably wasn't exactly accurate. Let me share this with you. See, you've got to go back to these Old Testament scriptures, and you've also got to be circumcised, and you've got to keep holiness here and to do these things. See, that kind of um, an attack on a person is very, very easy to fall for. Because all of us do have frailties. All of us do make mistakes. And it's just real logical to say, well, you know, that's true. Nobody's perfect. Maybe Paul didn't present everything exactly accurate. Well, Paul is coming back and saying, hey, he's not proclaiming that he's sinless or that he's never made a mistake. But in this area of preaching the gospel, he is making it crystal clear that this had nothing to do with him. There was no flesh in this. There was no mistakes. There is no room for any adaptation at all that Paul was speaking directly as the mouthpiece of God. The message that he had was not after man. In verse 12, he says, For I neither received it of man, neither was I taught it, but by the revelation of Jesus Christ. And here, through the rest of the chapter, we'll go into detail as we go through these verses, but basically he just begins to start recounting some of his own personal life, personal history, and he starts showing the people how that he didn't uh, go to school, seminary, to learn this. Matter of fact, all of his teaching was at the feet of Gamaliel. It was in the Jewish religion. It was in the things that these Judaizers were teaching the Galatians. 
And so his schooling that he got certainly wasn't in the gospel. Where he got taught the gospel, he didn't go up to the uh, apostles. He didn't go back and get some teaching. He didn't let Peter explain things to him. He didn't hear this from a man. He had a supernatural, a divine encounter with God on the road to on the road to Damascus, and then he talks here about how he went into the desert. And uh, it was 14 years after before he really began to start associating with other people. But during those 14 years, God had taught him by supernatural revelation. The gospel that he taught. And you can really see this in Paul's writings because what he said is very, very different than what the other writers wrote. It's not to say that it's in conflict, but he shows a revelation that certainly did not come from anybody else. As a matter of fact, Peter said this over in Second Peter. Uh, he, he was talking about Paul, and he said this. Excuse me, it's in yeah, it's in Second Peter, the last chapter. He says, uh, Our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given unto him, hath written unto you, as also in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to be understood, which they that are unlearned and unstable rest, as they do also the other scriptures unto their own destruction. Peter here acknowledged that Paul's writings were scripture. He called them scripture, but he says there are some things here hard to be understood. And of course, what he's talking about was the message of grace, because Peter was schooled in legalism as a Jew. And Paul was preaching a revelation of grace that even Peter says, this is hard to understand some of those things he's saying. But he had acknowledged the anointing of God on Paul's life to the degree that he says, even though they're hard to understand, he says, only those who are unlearned and unstable wrestle with them, he says, because they are Scripture. So Paul here is saying that his came by revelation. It did not come from the other apostles and even Peter. And and I'm sure if you had writings of the other apostles, they would have verified it. Paul got his teaching directly from God. This word in verse 12, that used, the word revelation here, it literally comes from a word that means to remove the cover. In other words, it was just like that some of the truths of the gospel were hidden. Other people weren't able to see this. It's just like that the Old Testament law somehow or another blinds people to understanding the grace of God. And I've certainly seen this in my dealings with other people, that when I start talking to somebody who is raised in legalism, religious bondage, telling you that, man, unless you're holy, God won't bless you. God moves in your life directly proportional to your holiness. And a person that comes under that type of legalism, it just somehow or another makes you spiritually blind. It's like a cover is over everything. Matter of fact, in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, uh, Paul was using this terminology to talk about Moses. When he put the veil over his face, when his face was radiating the glory of God, he had to put a veil over his face because people couldn't stand to look at him. And then Paul makes the analogy saying that veil is the Old Testament law. And once you turn to the Lord, God takes away this veil and you're able to see clearly. So the Old Testament law it was like a veil. It was like a cover that blinded us to the, to the grace, the revelation of the grace of God. And Paul here is using this word revelation. It means a taking off of the cover. God had, through the Spirit, taken away the blindness that came through the Old Testament legalism and law and had given Paul a revelation 
of the gospel of Christ. Paul said it this way in Colossians chapter 1. He talks about the mystery which was hidden, but it is now revealed unto us. Christ in us, the hope of glory. And, of course, in context, if you read that, he's also talking about the grace of God. So the gospel was a mystery. He also used that terminology over in the book of Ephesians. I think it's chapter 3, talking about this mystery that is now revealed unto the holy apostles and prophets through the Spirit. This was a revelation that came from God. And Paul is claiming here supernatural, divine revelation, not something that just came through men teaching it. Now, that's not to say that when men teach you that it's an inferior revelation, but it does mean that there is opportunity for you to uh, have that man put maybe some of his own interpretation in there. The opportunity for error is greater. It doesn't mean it has to happen, but there is a chance of error when you are learning through people. You have to be discerning and be able to take the good and recognize the false there and pick and choose. Somebody might have been able to criticize Paul if he had just learned this by rote from someone else. But Paul is saying that no man was involved in his teaching. No man was involved in his instruction. He went into the desert. He stayed there for 14 years. He just saturated himself in seeking God, and God gave him supernatural, divine revelation of this gospel that he preached. Well, that's powerful. You know, actually, I don't know that anybody else has ever received revelation the same way that Paul did. Uh, You know, I've started a Bible college, and we're sharing truths from God's Word. It's through anointed teaching and ministry, and people are receiving like that. And I think that today, if a person was to say, well, I don't need anybody to teach me anything, I'm just going to sit there and God will teach me. There is a verse that says something similar to that over in 1 John chapter 2, verse 27. It says, the anointing which you have received of him abides within you, and you need not that any man teach you anything. But as that anointing teaches you all things in his truth and is no lie, and even as you, he hath taught you, you shall abide in him. Technically, I believe it's possible. That's what Paul is claiming right here, that you just receive it totally, directly from God. But God does use people. Even Paul said himself in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, God chose through the foolishness of preaching to reveal the gospel and to bring the wisdom of man to nothing. God uses people. Paul also said in Romans chapter 10, How can they believe on him whom they have not heard? And how can they hear except somebody preach? And how can they preach except they be sent? Etc. Well, you don't need to become so fanatical with this that you think that everybody has to spend 14 years getting supernatural direct revelation from Paul. As a matter of fact, Paul, you know, he could have, if you wanted to be extreme with this, he could have said, well, I got it by revelation. Let everybody else get it by revelation. No, that's not so. He spent the rest of his life teaching these things to, to people. But I believe that God made a special case of Paul because this was such a radical departure from the Old Testament interpretation of the law. People had misunderstood things, and people were having so much legalism, so much bondage in their life, that the gospel was so radical that just as Galatians is portraying, people were going to criticize it. And people were going to say, boy, he's missed it. Maybe he's got a partial truth, but he's extreme. He's too fanatical. You need to compromise. You need to incorporate the Old Testament law with the New Testament grace. And they would have countered it and says, well, maybe he did okay to a degree, but after all, he's only human. I think that the Lord knew things like that were going to happen. And so he made the man who, you know, uh, you know, trumpeted this message of grace, 
He made him receive his revelation in a very supernatural fashion just to validate and verify to people who were skeptical that this was totally from God. And really, if you look at Paul and the things he taught, the, the eloquence that he did, like in the book of Romans, the way he put things together, and even here in the book of Galatians, the way he countered the legalistic Jews, I mean, it's so masterfully done that anybody with an open heart, I believe, would have to agree that this message came directly from God. It was not human in origin. And what that does, it just really helps skeptics to understand that, boy, this must be God. No man could have gotten this revelation on his own without it being supernaturally inspired of God. And this is the point that Paul is making. He's leaving no option to say, well, Paul, you're just a man. All of us make mistakes. He's saying this didn't come from man. This is direct from God. You either have to accept it the way it is or you have to reject it. Even if an angel was to try and add anything to this, let him be accursed. He is taking away all avenues of retreat from these Galatians, putting this into a confrontation and saying, you either repent and accept this gospel or you are rejecting God. Verse 13, Paul just amplifies on this same point that they cannot argue with the source where his message came from because look at his past manner of life. That's what he says in verse 13. He says, For you have heard of my conversation in time past in the Jews' religion, how that beyond measure I persecuted the church of God and wasted it and profited in the Jews' religion above many my equals in mine own nation, being more exceeding zealous of the traditions of my fathers. So Paul here, he's already made the point that he didn't talk to anybody else. Nobody can say he learned this gospel from someone else. Now he's beginning to say, look, I have been every bit as zealous for the law, and I was more into this than these legalistic Jews who are coming and perverting you. So basically he's saying, I've been on that side of the fence. I know what's over there. Nobody can say that I'm ignorant and don't know what they were talking about. He says, I was persecuting the church, even to the point of death, and trying to destroy and waste the church of God. I mean, these are some strong statements. You know, I've had people before come to me and say, well, you just don't understand. You have never experienced this or that. And when a person brings that kind of an argument against you, even though you don't have to experience something to know that it's wrong, uh, it kind of puts you at a disadvantage because, in a sense, they're saying that your knowledge is limited. Your understanding is limited. Again, this is a way of saying that, well, you may be sincere, but you're sincerely wrong. You don't understand. But, you know, you can't do that to a person that has been through what you're talking about. For instance, if a person <clears throat> is trying to... Um, con you and deceive you you know you've heard this expression before that you can't con a con and when a person you know has been through prison or something they've been through that route and then somebody comes along and tries to con them and deceive them boy it's real easy for that person to say hey you just can't pull this on me i've been there i know what you're doing and immediately it just disarms them whereas somebody who's naive is a lot more susceptible to that uh, I've had people, you know, come to me and criticize me over uh, different things. And yet when they find out that, hey, I've been there, like one of the things that I use often is because of my background, you know, I've never said a cuss word, etc. I've mentioned that many times before. Some people think, well, you just don't know what temptation's like. You've never been in a hard spot. And then I'll turn around and tell them about, hey, I've been in Vietnam. 
I've been over there where, you know, drugs were forced on you, where prostitution was forced on you by the government. I was the only person out of hundreds of people that didn't go into these prostitutes and didn't take drugs and stuff. And I can tell them, hey, I know what temptation is like, even though I may not have grown up that way. I've been exposed to it. And you know what that does? That just ends that argument. And right there, it, it makes a point. Well, this is what Paul is doing. These Judaizers, these legalistic Jews, I'm sure, were saying, well, Paul just doesn't understand. Well, he's making it clear here that he was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. You know, over in the third chapter of the book of Philippians, Paul lists his uh, qualifications, what his life was like before he was born again. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, it lists what he talks about his accomplishments are after his born-again experience, and he's basically listing all of his persecutions and hardships that he endured. But in Philippians 3, he lists his accomplishments outside of Christ, the things that he did in the natural, the way that he profited in the Jews' religion. And here it is in Philippians chapter 3, in the latter part of the fourth verse, he says, If any man thinks that he has whereof he might trust in the flesh, I am more. Circumcised the eighth day, which was the foundation ritual that you had to experience and was one of the points of contention in the book of Galatians. He says, Of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, and Hebrew of the Hebrews, talking about his devotion as touching the law of Pharisee. And the Pharisee were the strictest of the strictest sect among the Pharisees, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, touching the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. So Paul here is leaving no doubt that, man, he was committed to this. And this is what he's referring to in Galatians 1.13, even to the point that he went to persecuting anybody who believed on the Lord Jesus and followed Christianity. And, you know, this is always true. Legalism and grace are opposite forces. They are not just different ways of viewing the same thing. They are not just different strokes for different folks. They are opposite belief systems. And you'll find out that every time somebody is legalistic, they will always persecute those who believe in grace. It was the religious people that crucified Jesus. It was the religious Jews that dealt Paul his misery and stoned him. It was the religious people that did these things. It was the religious people that came out against him and gave him hard time. You'll find out that legalistic approach towards God, whether it's quote-unquote Christianity or some other form of religion, any religious system will rebel at grace. And I've already made this point like in the book of Romans and different places many times, but it's because it just basically says that all of their effort does not earn them righteousness with God. It just kills self-righteousness, and boy, they can't handle that. Those who are trusting in their own accomplishments find this very offensive, and there is persecution. Well, you see that in Paul. Man, he persecuted the church beyond measure. And it says in verse 14 that he profited in the Jews' religion above many my equals. That's talking about people of the same age, if you look at that in the Greek, what it's talking about. He's just basically saying that, man, I soared to the top of the charge. I was a leader in this thing. I was ahead of my year. Some of the older people, I was more zealous than they were. And his point, once again, that he's making is, is say, nobody can tell me that I don't understand what these legalistic Jews are trying to say. He says, I understand it. I actually was a leader in it. I believed it so strong at one time that I persecuted the church. And, you know, I am 
I'm excited that God has called me and given me a revelation of grace because when I preach the grace of God and that the Lord loves us independent of our actions, etc., it's very similar to what Paul is saying here. If somebody comes to me and says, well, the reason you're preaching this is just because you like to live in sin, because you like greasy grace, because you're just saying this so that you can justify your lifestyle, etc., I've done something similar to what Paul is talking about here, and I'll come back at him and say, look, there's not a person here that can condemn me about my lifestyle. Now, normally I would never do that, but I'm saying if you want to just get down in the mud and be carnal and talk about things from a carnal standpoint, I've lived holier than most people have. I understood what it was like to trust in yourself and to be legalistic and It did not produce righteousness in me. It did not produce joy. I've already lived holier than many of my critics who are criticizing me over preaching grace. And I can tell you by experience that it did not bring me the anointing and the joy and the peace that I was seeking for. It was understanding the grace and the love of God that purchased that in my life. And so, see, because of that, I can just disarm some people who would criticize me normally. If I was out living a life of sin, well, then they would have a criticism against me, and they may not even listen to what I'm saying. So Paul's doing the same thing. He's he's listing these accomplishments here, talking about who he was before he was born again to show them that, hey, these legalistic Jews hadn't got any right to stand there and criticize him. In verse 15, he says, But when it pleased God, who separated me from my mother's womb, and called me by his grace to reveal his son in me, that I might preach him among the heathen, immediately I conferred not with flesh and blood. Now, before we go on in this, I just want to mention here that Paul is making kind of a radical statement here. He says that God separated him. Separated him unto himself, of course, is what he's talking about. God separated Paul unto himself from his mother's womb. Now, you, you know, this is a concept that is recorded other places in Scripture. Paul isn't the only one who said this. It also said was of, I, of Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 49, verses 1 and 5. Also, Jeremiah in chapter 1, verse 5. The Lord spoke to Jeremiah, and he says, Before I formed you in your mother's womb, I sanctified you, which is what the word separate means, or the word sanctify means to separate, And he says, I ordained you to be a prophet unto the nations. That was done before he ever ever came forth of his mother's womb. It also is spoken about John the Baptist, the same thing. John the Baptist was prophesied about his destiny. He was filled with the Holy Spirit before he ever came out of his mother's womb in Luke chapter 1. And we can also see that this was the same thing with Samson. Samson was supernaturally birthed and ordained and given a ministry. So this is a Bible principle that people were called and separated before they ever did anything. Not it, w- it wasn't just something that the Lord looked down and said, well, who's doing the best along here? And then he chose somebody. But we have a calling and a separation from God even before we're born again. And I don't believe that it's limited to just these few people. I believe that Paul recognized it, Isaiah recognized it, Jeremiah recognized it, John the Baptist recognized it. But I actually believe, and and I'll present this as andeology because I don't know that I can confirm this by Scripture, but I believe that every last one of us actually were created for a purpose. I believe that every one of us, our gifts and our talents that we have, are given us by God to help accomplish a specific purpose. And I think this is very significant because there's a lot of people 
that don't have this attitude, they actually believe that basically it's up to them to pick and choose whatever they want to do. They don't feel any sense of destiny. And because of that, they just do their own thing and then ask God to bless it. Well, I don't believe that that's the way to really be successful. Matter of fact, this man, Peter Daniels, who wrote a book, uh, and he studied the lifestyles and, and just biographies of many, many successful people. He came up with a number of common denominators among the highly successful people, people that the world considers a success. And one of the consistent denominators in each one of these lives was that they all had a sense of destiny. They felt like they were actually gifted and given certain things and that somehow they may not have always attributed it to God, but to fate or to something. They felt that they were pre-programmed for something and that they just kind of found what that was. They found a purpose for their life outside of themselves, and then they gave their energies to producing it. And I really believe that you can see that in successful people. I can certainly tell you that in my life, any success I've had has come because God revealed to me a purpose for my life. And because I've been seeking to fulfill that and flow with what God has called me to do. Paul is saying that's what happened to him. That's what happened to these other people. And I really believe that it's true of all of us, that God has created all of us with a purpose. Another scripture that kind of goes along with this is Psalms chapter 139. And in verse 13, the scripture says, For thou hast possessed my reins. This is God. Uh, well, actually, it's the writer of Psalms 139 saying this about God. He is saying that God possessed his reins. You have covered me in my mother's womb. I will praise thee, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are thy works, and that my soul knoweth right well. My substance was not hid from thee when I was made in secret and curiously wrought in the lowest parts of the earth. Thine eyes did see my substance, yet being unperfect, and in thy book all my members were written, when in continuance were fashioned, which in continuance were fashioned, when as yet there was none of them. In other words, this is just talking about the complete knowledge of God about us before we were even formed in our mother's womb, while we were still what the world would call a fetus, that God knew all about us and knew all of our parts and exactly what we had looked like. And it's showing that things don't just happen. It's not accident. We were created by God with a purpose. And we were designed by God. We did not evolve. And what this does, it makes us accountable unto God. It is not up to us to just pick and choose our own thing. We need to all recognize that God has a purpose for our life. I believe that Paul just recognized it. But God had a purpose. And it says here that God separated him. Now this does not mean that because God separated him, that Paul never went astray. In his own verses right here, just the previous verses in those scriptures we read over in Philippians chapter 3, he took this drive, this instinctive or creative force on the inside of him to serve God. He took that and he perverted it and put it into the legalistic Judaism. And it made him mean and angry to the point of even killing people who professed the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he certainly wasn't functioning and fulfilling the call of God upon his life. Just because it says here that he was separated from his mother's womb doesn't mean that this meant he you know, had never gone astray or done anything wrong. Paul missed it big time. 
but yet it still was a driving force in his life. He's basically saying that he always knew he was going to be serving God. He did it the wrong way, and it took a dramatic experience to turn him around 14 years before he actually began to get some revelation of it and was able to turn his life around and start ministering in a different direction. But nonetheless, he recognized that call from the time he was a very young person. You know, there was a guy that I was visiting with one time that was had lived just the opposite life of me. He did everything wrong that could be done. He was not brought up in a Christian home. He was brought up by alcoholic parents. And because of that, he went through rejection, through poverty, through strife, through all kinds of things. He got into drugs. He did just about everything that could be done. He was sharing his testimony with me. And even though it was a wonderful testimony about how God had delivered him, at the same time, he was kind of sad about why did your life go that way, and here I was. I didn't have a tremendous revelation of God, and yet I responded to the Lord from a very young age, got born again when I was eight years old, and have always been seeking God, never went through that rebellion, never got on drugs, never did uh, alcohol, never got into sexual immorality. And I, at first, I was feeling kind of guilty. And I mentioned something to him about, you know, it doesn't seem fair. And as we talked about it, you know, he says, when I was a kid, there were thoughts that came to me. There were things that he really felt like it was God calling him. He just didn't have it reinforced, and so he missed that decision. Basically, the difference was, sure, he had different pressures on him than what I had on me. Maybe I got by without some of the same pressures, but I just heard the call of God, and I responded to it at a young age. He heard it. But because of whatever reason, he didn't respond to it, and it took him until he was in his 20s before his life got turned around. But God was faithful in both instances. God does have a purpose for every person's life. If you would go back, I believe that you could see that God, from a young age, there were things that happened in your life that if you had just responded differently, and I'm not trying to place blame or condemnation, I'm saying this for the purpose of trying to encourage you that regardless of what's happened in your life, you could be like, Paul here. Paul was separated from his mother's womb, but he missed it as big time as anybody ever could. And yet God was able to redeem it and turn it back around and use it for good. If God could do that for Paul, well, then God could do it for you. Praise the Lord. And I do believe that you do have a purpose. You were ordained, created, and designed to accomplish a specific purpose. Verse 16, it says that it pleased God uh, to reveal his son in him. Notice in verse 15 that said he called me by his grace. That's going to be the subject of this entire book of Galatians. And so he's mentioning this specifically, that he feels his calling was by grace. And actually, if you take his statements in context, talking about his previous life, that makes his point. Because, man, if anybody did not deserve to be an apostle and a minister of the gospel, it was Paul. Paul's whole life verifies that God does not move in someone's life based on their performance, not because they are worthy of it. So they were called by grace. It pleased God to reveal his son in me. And, you know, if we had time, you could just take nearly every word here and make a powerful truth out of it. The son was revealed in him. 
this wasn't just an external knowledge. Now, he saw this blinding flash of light and was brought to his knees, but the thing that really changed him was the revelation that took place in his heart. You can't reach a person from the outside in. You may get their attention from the outside. You may be able to pray and they might see a miracle or God does something that grabs their attention, but it's going to be an inner revelation that turns a person's life around. God revealed his son, Jesus, in Paul. And then the results was that I might preach him among the heathen. He not only called him to preach, but he gave him a specific segment of society to preach to, specifically the heathen, the non-Jew, the Gentile. And, you know, in the natural, this doesn't make sense because if anybody, anybody, anybody was ever qualified to go to the religious, legalistic Jew and convince them of the grace of God, it would have been Paul. Paul was there. Paul had been through that. And this was Paul's desire. You can see in Romans chapter 9, Paul longed for the Jews to such a degree that he even said, I wish that I could be accursed, that I could go to hell and suffer for my brethren, the Jews. Paul's heart was there. Paul longed to minister to the, to the Jews, even though he knew he was called to the Gentiles. And you can see on his missionary trips, even though he was called to the Gentiles, it made that very clear in Acts chapter 13, where he was separated and sent forth to the Gentiles. He still went into the Jewish synagogues. He still tried to minister to the Jews, and he tried and tried and tried until finally they rejected him time after time. And he shook the dust off of his feet and said, from henceforth I'll go unto the Gentiles. Even after that, he still ministered in Jewish synagogues, but he began to concentrate on the Gentiles more. So in the natural, it doesn't make sense. You know, if man was calling people, I believe that we probably would have picked Paul and said, this is the one that must be ordained by God to go to the Jews. And yet God used Peter as the apostle to the Jews. I mean, an unlearned, an ignorant man is what it says in Acts chapter 4. That's what the scribes and the Pharisees said about Peter and John. They were unlearned, an ignorant man. They didn't have the education. They weren't respected. And yet God used them to minister to the Jews. I tell you, God uh, just sees things differently than we do. And I think lots of times in the church today, we are using only human reasoning and we're missing the supernatural revelation of God. Some of the most unlikely people, people that we wouldn't pick, are the very ones that God wants to use. And so God revealed to Paul that he was to preach Jesus among the heathen. And, and Paul says, immediately I conferred not with flesh and blood. This is talking about he didn't talk to some person about it. Neither went I up to Jerusalem to them which were apostles before me, but I went into Arabia and returned again into Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to see Peter and abode with him 15 days. Now, some people here might take issue and say, well, see, he spent time with Peter, and Peter probably explained these things to him. Well, if you follow the chronology that Paul gave here, this was over three years after his conversion. He had not been idle. He had already been in the deserts of Arabia. God had already been giving him revelation. And 15 days is not anywhere near enough time to explain the revelation that Paul got. You could not turn some person's life around in 15 days. So this is just a, a passing mention of how he spent time with Peter for 15 days. But certainly this does not mean that he got his revelation from Peter. Instead, the very context, he's making the opposite point. 
And in verse 19, he says, But other of the apostles saw I none, save James, the Lord's brother. So he only saw James, the half-brother of Jesus, and he saw Peter. Other than that, he never spent time with these apostles. And the point that he is making is that he did not get his gospel from man. It was divine revelation. His past life proves that if anybody... Anybody wants to criticize him and say that he doesn't understand the Old Testament law and how important it is, they have no argument there because he was more schooled in it and more zealous of it than any critic that he's ever had. And so he's just destroying all of their opposition. Really, it is totally illogical, the position that these Gentiles had uh, taken. The Galatians, if they had really thought about who it was, what he had been through, they should never have fallen for these lies and the deception of these Judaizers who had come in and confused things. In verse 20, he says, Now the things which I write unto you, behold, before God I lie not. And Paul basically is just saying, look, this is the truth. He's saying, nobody can accuse me of lying about this. They, they already knew his former conversation, and he made that point in the 13th verse. In verse 21, he says, Afterwards I came into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and that's basically talking about where his hometown was. Tarsus was in this area, and he dwelt in Tarsus for approximately 11 years until Barnabas came and called him and drew him to Antioch. And then in verse 22, he says that he was unknown by face unto the churches of Judea. That's because when he went to Jerusalem, the things that he described up here in verse 18, he only saw Peter and James, the half-brother of the Lord. So he didn't minister in the church. He didn't meet the other apostles. And so the church at Jerusalem didn't know him. But it says they had heard only that he which persecuted us in times past now preacheth the faith with which he destroyed, and they glorify God in me. Now, this is quite a testimony about the impact that Paul's conversion or Saul's conversion had upon the church. Of course, they were certainly aware of the persecution. He was, uh, he was making an impact on the church. He turned many away from the faith, and I'm sure that everybody was aware of the cost of being a disciple of the Lord. And to hear that the man who is leading this, who went to Damascus for the express purpose of killing, destroying people who were believers, he got converted in a miraculous fashion. I can guarantee you that this was like a feather in the cap of these uh, believers. It was a tremendous testimony. Instead of God wiping out their arch enemy, he converted him and made him on the same side. Now, I'm sure there was a lot of them, and as you go on to read his story here in the second chapter, you'll see that uh, they were skeptical of it. I'm sure that they were wondering whether this was a ploy to get these Christians to come out in the open so he could get their name and kill them. I'm sure there was skepticism, but at the very least, it still was an exciting testimony, and this shows that the churches of Judea, even though he had never preached there, they had heard about him. He had made an impact on the body of Christ. This story of his conversion... Uh, was just a powerful, powerful impact on the body there. And it says that they glorified God in me. Paul had brought glory to God through his conversion, and I'm sure he had brought a lot of shame and embarrassment to the Pharisees who had sent him to Damascus. And once again, you would think that, boy, what a great opportunity for Paul to minister to the uh, Jews in Jerusalem. And Paul certainly desired to do that, but every time he tried, he got in trouble. That's where he was put in prison, and uh, it just never worked out. That was not God's will for Paul. Things don't always go the way we plan it. 
but he was called and separated for what purpose? To minister to the heathen. That was that was ordained. That was ordained. Praise God. There's so much more. Anyway, in the second chapter, we'll continue to talk about Paul defending his revelation coming from God and not from man. And he gets into some things talking about Peter and some strong statements about these Judaizers and the things that they were doing. So we'll continue right here on our next tape.